Today's episode is brought to you by Get Your Guide. Want to make your next trip unforgettable? There's an easy way to do that. Book a Get Your Guide travel experience. Whether you're into food, nature, culture, sports, immerse yourself in the things that you love on your next vacation. For example, you could check out the Sherlock Holmes tour in London. You could take a pasta making class in Rome, experience the San Diego whale and dolphin watching cruise, or go whitewater rafting in the Grand Canyon. They've got a night helicopter flight over Las Vegas, a New York City street art and graffiti tour. They've even got a Chicago river cruise and architecture tour. Uh, I have to stress that my family went on one of these uh, architecture boat tours of Chicago, and it's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, So, I mean, this is the kind of thing that you want to turn to get your guide for. Whatever you're into, you'll find an experience you love. Discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at GetYourGuide.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music and lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. My co-host Joe was out on holiday leave at the time of this recording, so I turned to former Weird House guest host and former producer on the show, Seth Nicholas Johnson of the podcast Rusty Needles Record Club. Seth, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Uh, Before we get into the movie and the movie selection here, uh, what have you been up to on Rusty Needles Record Club? Well, I believe just yesterday we recorded our Best Albums of 2023 list, which is always fun. Not only Mm -hmm. do I enjoy making that list every year, but I also enjoy hearing everyone else's lists. Like my co-host, Scott, when he was making his list, I gotta say, despite the absolutely absurd amount of music that I consume every year and how all of my spare money goes into listening to music and going to concerts and all that stuff... I still hadn't heard probably two-thirds of his top 10 list, which is amazing to me because we're close friends with very similar taste in music, and yet there's just so much wonderful music in the world that I, I love this time of year, the um, Decembers and Januaries when you get to catch up on everyone's favorites of the year list. You're pretty much guaranteed gold from everyone. I love it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess when you when you fill your life with music, there are so many different corners of your life. You have different musical tastes occupying. And yeah, not all of them are going to come up in conversation, even with close um, collaborators or friends. You know, it's, it's, there's going to be some some hidden gems in there as well. Exactly. So, yeah, it's a great time for music. And um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a fun show if there are any music fans in the audience. All right. Well, the, the movie for this week is 
1959 Roger Corman directed and, of course, produced beatnik horror comedy, or, you know, I guess a black uh, comedy, if you will, uh, titled A Bucket of Blood, starring Dick Miller. Uh, this was your pick, Seth. Um, this was not one that was really on my radar. How do you zero in on this one? What's your history with the film? Well, basically, I have a real love for uh, what's known as gray market DVDs. They're not they're not quite black market DVDs. They are legal, but just barely, you know, mm-hmm. those kind um, the, the kinds of things you find in a store or on uh, online called like drive in cult classics, 32 movie collection or, yes. you know, the classic sci fi ultimate collection volume two. So if it was ultimate, I'm not sure why there's a volume two, but hey, <laughs> and then, uh, tales of terror, 200 classic horror movies like I, I buy these collections often. Um, ultimately, just because I'm a big fan of creativity over craft. And mm-hmm. when I'm watching, let's call it like a typical Hollywood film, it usually follows the same beats and has the same structure. And it's just not very interesting to me just because you, you, you can predict where everything's going to go and it's whatever. It's boring. So by just taking a step outside of that blueprint for filmmaking, you end up in some weird corners. And even if it's a bad movie, as long as it's interesting, that's kind of enough for me. So by going down the B-movie route, that's at least my reasoning for why I love B-movies and old movies and bad movies, is that you can't really predict where it's going, which makes them far Mm -hmm. more interesting than the typical Hollywood film these days. And uh, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's why I went down that route. And then uh, in one of these collections, I actually dug through my DVDs and I found the exact disc where I discovered this. This was called Horror Classics. Uh, and then it has uh, the, 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 the title here, Four Movies Over Four Hours. So, <laughs> Well, that's reasonably cut down because I was thinking one of the things about these, especially DVD releases, uh, and they're still putting them out. And some of them mm-hmm. are, you know, are very nice and some of them are higher budget affairs but so yeah sometimes it's like four movies and to your point other times it's like 50 movies yes and you can sort of do the algebra in your head it's like okay the quality of those four films is now spread out over like 50 titles right. so there are going to be a number of neglected um uh, films and forgotten films in the slot well for example here's what's on this uh disc which I was looking at the uh, dates on it, and I purchased this in 2003 from Platinum Disc Corporation from La Crosse, uh, Wisconsin. So that's fun. <laughs> but uh, here's what was on this disc. Uh, Horror Hotel, A Bucket of Blood, The Devil's Hand, and I Bury the Living. I've actually seen all four of those, and they're actually not bad. But but I, I think that's the point, though, is that usually when you're watching these, it's a real roll of the dice what the quality is going to be. Because mm-hmm. the reason why people put out these gray market DVDs is because it costs them very little. Either um, these are public domain films or films that have just like the lowest licensing fees ever. And so it, it's just a cheap way for someone to make a quick buck. So they just, you know, it, it, I think shovelware is is a term for it <laughs> when it's applied to video games. But um, it, it's it's just... It's nothing. It's cheap nothing. So usually it's garbage. And every once in a while you find a gem. And this, a bucket of blood, is one of those very rare gems in these piles of public domain and low licensing fees movies on these gray market DVDs. And when I saw it the first time, I immediately knew that it was just a cut above the rest and that it was a movie that I was going to share with people and show to people. And I think 
more to the point. I am an art school kid. You know, my, my college degree is in the fine arts and all that kind of stuff. So when I see things like beatniks and cafes and art gallery showings and all those things, it just feels very at home to me. And um, the lampooning of it feels very direct and personal in a charming and fun way. So I think that's another reason why I latch on to it uh, so directly. Yeah, I mean, there's an authenticity to this film, right? Mm-hmm. It, it it feels like it's commenting on on actual uh, people and culture. Uh, sometimes the films of this caliber have that feeling of like having been written by an alien, <laughs> acted right. by aliens. Like this is just a, a rough approximation of what human beings are like. But there's real humanity in this, even though at the same time, of course, it, it is a it is a horror film, horror comedy, a satire. It's not attempting to adhere very closely to the contours of life, but it's commenting on those con- those contours for sure. And some of those comments are still pretty valid. So like this movie was made in the 19 or sorry, late 1950s. I think it's 59. And um, there's one joke in here in particular where I was like, yeah, that still hits home. It was um, all the beatniks were like waking up and they're like flop house and they're all sitting Mm -hmm. around to breakfast. And uh, our protagonist walks in and and the the head beatnik offers him breakfast. And I wrote this down because I loved it so much. He offers him soy and wheat germ pancakes or (laughs) got... He pronounces it organic, but it's organic. Organic guava nectar, calcium lactate and tomato juice, and gorbanzo omelets sprinkled with smoked yeast. And I thought to myself, that's 100% a meal I run into in my little vegan cafes that I go to. Like, mm-hmm. no, like no over-exaggeration, no like playing it up for, 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 for giggles. That's a real meal that I have eaten in a standard, <laughs> typical 2023, or I guess 2024 now, um, vegan cafe. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I was excited when I realized this was going to be a beatnik movie because I was recently reflecting just sort of, you know, casually while I'm doing something else like around the house or something that I don't think Weird House Cinema had featured a proper beatnik movie. Mm. And uh, and this is a perfect one. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it hits all the right notes. And there's not enough, like, it's not just casually beatnik. It's not like, okay, we kill a couple of beatniks off in the first <laughs> couple of minutes. It's devoted to commenting on beatnik culture. Right, right, for sure. Now, for anyone out there, if you're not familiar with the term beatnik or you're only loosely familiar with it, roughly speaking, these were members of the beat generation and more specifically followers of kind of an anti-materialistic bohemian lifestyle, you know, to varying degrees that people are aligned with any given social movement. This would have been the late 50s, early 60s. You know, icons like Allen Ginsberg are generally associated with this uh, scene. They were pre-hippies, though many of them would go on to become hippies. It's also... I love when the mainstream bastardizes subcultures. I find it so funny every Mm -hmm. single time. A lot of 80s films, when they're um, trying to uh, identify and uh, focus on the punk scene, hilarious. (laughs) Um, Hippies. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, it's all of the subcultures. Whenever the mainstream focuses on a subculture, whether it be rave kids in their early 2000s, anything, anything, it's always ridiculous and always fun. Um, Hackers, the film Hackers was was a great version of that. They're they're all good. Any, Any mainstream version of a subculture is lampoon worthy in itself and this is one of them for sure but i think they're they're pretty accurate <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah they always they always paint with a broad brush but uh but given that they get to devote the whole film to beatniks you have like these different caricatures of, of mm-hmm. beatniks very true now you mentioned the different subcultures across different decades you know especially given that this film ultimately has a has a simplistic but effective um 
format, you know, mm-hmm. you could easily apply it to a different subculture, like every decade or even every five years. And indeed, there's at least one seemingly bad remake of this film from 1995 that updates it for um, like Gen X hipsters instead of beatniks. I've seen it. I've seen oh, it. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. The main reason I watched it is I believe years ago I was on like IMDb trivia or something for this mm-hmm. movie, Bucket of Blood. And while I was there, one of the pieces of trivia was like, Will Ferrell uh, plays a bit <laughs> part in the remake of this film. And so I, I had to hunt it down and see it just to see what it was like, because one of the things this movie, A Bucket of Blood, is clearly lacking as a budget. Like, it's clearly mm-hmm. like a a bottom of the barrel Roger Corman we have $12 in 5 days let's just make a movie yeah. and so because of that you know it it suffers from the things that do suffer without a budget but then i watched the remake and it i think if if i remember correctly i may not i think it was a showtime original movie like movie Ooh. of the week kind of thing <laughs> so it still had a rock bottom budget and it was it was not it was not improved with an increased budget because I don't believe they actually increased the budgets. <laughs> and so I think the original is all you need. Yeah, yeah. The, the remake has Anthony Michael Hall in it. I think David Cross also shows up in it at some point. Um, but uh, I, I, I have not seen it. I just watched a clip of it. And uh, that, w- that was all I need. Yeah, yes, that's correct. That's correct. If you're going to watch one, I recommend the original. All right. Well, let's go ahead and listen to a little bit of the trailer audio on this one uh, so folks can get a a taste of what we're going to be talking about here. The artist, the poet, the figure model who loves to show it. He could be physically attracted to her? No, man, he ain't the type. He don't get enough vitamin E. All these are beat. All these you'll meet in a bucket of blood. Let us make the scene. Crazy. Come, enjoy yourself. (laughs) Where the hilarious enjoy the horrifying. In a bucket of blood. No, you're gonna shoot me, don't shoot! Come to the land of living dreams, where realists dream of the unreal. Walter, you've done something to me. Something deep down inside of my prana. Oh, Walter, I want to be with you. You're creative. Beatniks at their bawdiest. The creative urge at its most primitive. I'm deeply moved. And I shall compose a poem. Love is art. Art is love. It's the weirdest and the wildest. I don't want to make statues anymore. I want to get married to you. Well, if if you want to go out and watch this film before we discuss it uh, anymore here and get into some spoilers and so forth, well, lucky luckily you don't have to go and get that um, bargain uh, bin of uh, four to fifty uh, forgotten horror films because it's widely available digitally. 
Uh, I watched this one on Prime. Um, and the Film Detective uh, Studio put out a very nice Blu-ray of the picture if you want to go physical media on it. So you got plenty of options. For sure. It's public domain, so you can find it on YouTube. You can find it, you know, playing at a gas station pump anywhere. <laughs> anywhere, really, that there's a screen. <laughs> that, would, <laughs> that would be great. I wish they showed movies like this at gas stations. They should. You know, I, I, there's a couple of really good restaurants where they'll do that. They'll just project public domain old films like on the walls while you eat. There was a burger oh, place nice. in Atlanta that did that that I really liked. Oh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I know the place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, let's get into the the people involved in this film. Uh, we mentioned already that this is a Roger Corman picture, uh, directed and produced. Corman, of course, towering name in American B cinema. And this is a film that's often mentioned in highlights of his directorial output, even, even though I, I never, it wasn't really on my, my radar. Uh, I think it was probably because it had kind of, you know, it has this grotesque title, Bucket of Blood, that, that puts a lot of ideas into your head. Uh, and I, I do have to stress, there is no bucket of blood that I remember. There's maybe a, a pan of blood, yeah, like uh, but it's not all pots. the way filled up. <laughs> no. <Yeah. laughs> Yeah, it's, it's not nearly as grisly as it implies. Obviously, you know, they're trying to, to get the, the teens into the, the, uh, the drive-in here. This is perhaps a movie title first situation and perhaps even a poster first. Did you see the poster for this? Yeah. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's like a page out of Mad Magazine. It's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, but it, but it clearly doesn't have a monster. So I, that might have been a reason that I never really was drawn into it before, just because it was, it was clearly not a monster film. It's talking about a bucket of blood, and I end up moving on to the next thing. And there are a lot of things to move on to in Roger Corman's filmography. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this one stands out because it's actually, you know, a darkly satirical horror comedy. And it kicks off a loose trilogy of Corman-directed and Charles B. Griffith-scripted black comedies. Um, again, this was 59, A Bucket of Blood, followed up by... 1960s The Little Shop of Horror, which I think everyone is familiar with uh, to some degree or another, and then 1961's Creature from the Haunted Sea. All classics, all wonderful films. Excellent. Yeah, I, um, I haven't seen Creature from the Haunted Sea, but now, now I'm, I'm interested to check it out. I mean, Roger Corman, I mean, I, I don't think he's underrated, but perhaps people think of him mostly as... Um, someone who had a lot of content but he also had a lot of quality i have to say like i i think for his limitations in budget and time he made amazing pieces for what resources he had if he had more resources actually who knows maybe he worked well under pressure <laughs> but for, for the the amount of money that he worked with and the amount of time that he spent on them they're actually remarkable films Oh, yeah. I mean, just just discussing films that um, we've that have been covered on Weird House in the past uh, that Joe and I've talked about, like 1957's Not of This Earth. Very cheap. But the, the fact that the movie is so cheap and you can still find things to talk about, that there's still things that stand out and are memorable and demand bad remakes decades later, I, it's right. commendable. Yeah. And that's and that you want to rewatch them and you want to share them with your friends. That's um. That's that's really telling when you when you just finished watching 199 other bad um, horror movies. Yeah. And then, you know, a film like 1964's Mask of the Red Death, you get to see what Corman was capable of when he did have a bigger budget backing him up. Right. And did go for like a stylistic picture. That's a great example. Yeah. This picture, though, is, again, 1959. It's coming on the heels of, I think, five different pictures that he directed in uh, the previous year in 58, uh, including Teenage Caveman, and eight pictures 
from 57, including Not of This Earth and Attack of the Crab Monsters. Uh, so he's it, kind of entering a new dimension here. You know, he, he directed a lot of different things. We think of him, you know, in terms of monster films, but he did Westerns, he did crime, he did uh, dramas, and uh, of course he did black comedies and satires, as we see in this picture. Now, the screenwriter, again, is Charles B. Griffith, who lived 1930 through 2007. Uh, American screenwriter best known for his work uh, with Corman, uh, which also included some acting. And, you know, as is often the case in the Corman camp, you know, it's like you're just called on to do different things. Um, uh, he worked on such films as Not of This Earth from 56, Attack of the Crab Monsters, 57, The Little Shop of Horrors. He also directed six films, including 59's Forbidden Island, 79's Up from the Depths, and 1989's Wizards of the Lost Kingdom 2. <laughs> I actually like that one. That one, that yeah. one's an MST3K one, and I like that one quite a bit. <laughs> oh, yeah. I haven't I haven't watched that MST3K episode yet, but I, yeah, that's I, that's. Oh, I I want to say that's perhaps the second Netflix season, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, no, that was actually a good one. I like that one. <laughs> this has some sort of crazy lion creature or something in the sky. I want to say that sounds about right. That sounds yeah. about right. Mostly, it was that kind of like comedic relief and small child traveling mm. across medieval Europe kind of situation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. 
All right, getting into the cast here. Uh, this film is all about Walter Paisley, and we're going to have a lot to say about the character of Walter Paisley uh, as we proceed here. But Walter Paisley is played by the great Dick Miller, who lived 1928 through 2019. Uh, we've talked about him before on Weird House Cinema, legendary character actor from the Bronx who made his way to California in the mid-50s. He was trying to make a go at it as a writer, but then he meets Roger Corman. Roger Corman didn't need writers, he needed actors, so he started using them in, on pictures as early as 1955's Apache Woman, in which I believe he plays two different bit parts. So it's like, get in there, Dick, we, we, need, we need you in the background here, and okay, now wipe the makeup off, we need you in this scene as well. And from that point on, he ends up you know, showing up in, in other Corman pictures, uh, uh, such as Not of This Earth. Um, and he in, not, not, not of This Earth is a great example where he comes in, he brings a lot of energy and creativity to the role. I think he ad-libs some stuff. He takes something that could just be, uh, you know, a thankless little extra role. This guy's going to be killed by the alien menace and makes it something memorable. And so it's no surprise that uh, Corman finally casts him in the lead. He casts him in the lead in a crime drama titled Rock All Night. And this kicks off a whole string of roles in Corman pictures. He becomes a, an icon of genre cinema, popping up uh, later on in memorable roles in such pictures as Gremlins, uh, Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight, uh, The Terminator, of course. He has that great small role as the, the, the guy that's uh, running the gun shop that the Terminator goes into. So wherever he pops up, he's always a treat. And while many filmgoers, I think, tend to associate him with kind of snappy working man roles, you know, like in Terminator, just what you see here, pal. Uh, Bucket of Blood <laughs> casts him as a likable, but ultimately dim-witted outcast who desperately wants to belong. So it, it, if you're not used to seeing him outside of those sort of working man roles, you might be a little surprised at the uh, ultimately the depth that uh, that they get into here with this character. It's also the first of several characters named Walter Paisley that he ends up playing, right? I was going through his IMDb recently because this is something that I had heard but never really paid much attention to. And yeah, I found about a dozen other times he played someone named either Walter Paisley, Walter, <laughs> Walt, or something Paisley. Like I saw these two cop films he he was in where he played like Sergeant Paisley back to back, and mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, it seems like that was that. I have to assume that it's everyone paying homage back to this film, but mm -hmm. I guess it could also be that there was some sort of inside joke where that's something happened even pre this film with the name Walter Paisley, and even this film is homage to some other inside joke about the name Walter Paisley. But yep. at least in cinema, on screen, this is the birth of the name Walter Paisley, that he then played that, I guess, just the name, because it can't be the same role. Because mm -hmm. again and again and again, all the different Waltz and Walters and Walter Paisleys he plays, like, for example, the uh, the garbage man in The Burbs. I believe that's a <laughs> Walter Paisley. Um I may be getting this one wrong, but so he kept working with Joe Dante over and over. Joe Dante yeah. loved to put him in any movie he ever did. I think the show, um, let's see, it was called Erie, Indiana. And I believe his role was in that episode, he would sneak around and whenever someone loses something, like they lose a sock in the dryer, they lose the, the cap of their pen, whatever, it's because Walter Paisley is sneaking up and stealing it. Ah. And because it's a big part about like the American economy where they need to uh, um, ensure that people are still buying new things. So Walter Paisley is sneaking around and stealing people's belongings when they think that they lose them. 
really remarkable. Oh, I, I bring that up because um, Joe Dante produced that series. That that was oh. that's the connection there. Yeah. Okay, I remember Erie, Indiana. I remember liking it, but I haven't really revisited it since it originally aired. Yeah, it was like um, X Files for kids, with definitely yeah. some like Twilight Zone for kids mixed in there. It was it was a fun series. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, Dick Miller, the star of this picture, and I think it's a pretty solid performance. He's awkward and likable in the early goings. Uh, not just socially awkward, but like physically bumbling in a very mm. effective manner. Like there's an early scene where he, he's frustrated. He goes to kick like a milk carton on the street and falls. <laughs> it's, uh, yes. it's, it's great. No, it, he's very believable. And especially when you compare him to, like you said, his more like workman type characters later where mm-hmm. he's kind of like gruff and, and you know, what, was he in Chopping Mall? Am I remembering yeah, that correctly? Yeah, yeah he we're, was we're... a janitor who gets murdered by the robots. Exactly. Like that that kind of role, I think most people associate him with just kind of like that, like grumpy old man and, and part of the body count, basically. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, this is a true character. It's it's quite good. Yeah. And eventually this is a character that darkens somewhat. Uh, it is titled A Bucket of Blood. And he's able to push that portrayal to the dark side a bit as well. You know, not to the, to the degree that somebody who specializes in that sort of thing, but then that sort of actor wouldn't be necessarily be able to to manage the lovable uh, and likable aspects of the character as well. I mean, it, you know, it would take a it would take a special actor to really nail both of those. Uh, and I think Dick Miller does a, a pretty darn good job here. For sure. All right. Other members of the cast. Um, Carla is the only beatnik in the film that is nice to him early on. <laughs> and as such, this is the woman of his dreams. Uh, She's played by Barbara Morris, who lived 1932 through 1975. She appeared in several Corman films beginning in 57 with uh, a trio that included Rock All Night. She's also in 58's Teenage Caveman. She's in 59's The Wasp Woman. And later on, she appeared in Corman's 1967 LSD movie, The Trip, which is pretty amusing. That's uh, Dennis Hopper and, and his crew. Bruce Dern is in it as a guy that's here to guide you on your trip. Uh, and then she pops up in 1970s, The Dunwich Horror, one of her final roles. That's a film that's been covered on Weird House as well. Not much to say here. She's likable, effective mm-hmm. performance. Absolutely. Uh, okay, then we have, uh, we, we should mention that the, the central setting for the whole picture is the Beatnik Bar. Or I guess it's more of a, a coffee uh, shop type of situation. Uh, coffee house. Beatnik Coffee House called The Yellow Door. Yeah, it's kind of like that that typical... Um, coffee house that you picture in your mind where it has like a little stage for like an open mic night type mm-hmm. situation. It's got, you know, locals art hanging around the walls. It's it's that general purpose local art scene. Yeah. Yeah. And it's uh, it's interesting that it's it's presented uh, it's, it's, it's presented well. You believe that this is a real place, but it's presented seemingly simultaneously like from an inward view as well as an outside view because it feels authentic but then also there's this whole element of like not one but two undercover cops have been assigned to this place to uh (laughs) to keep track of the beatnik heroin trade and going like 24 hours we see them like trade off you know yeah (laughs) my shift's done your turn (laughs) yeah was there really that much uh heroin action going on at your average uh like you know small coffee house uh, in the late 50s i don't know (laughs) But anyway, the guy that runs the place is this character, uh, Leonard DeSantis, uh, played by Anthony Carbone, who lived 1925 through 2020, uh, the immoral owner, operator of the Beatnik Coffee House here. He appeared in various TV and film projects, including several Corman pictures. He pops up in 61's The Pit and the Pendulum, uh, which, of course, stars Vincent Price. 
Those were such great films. I I, I love that run of all of the Poe films. Oh, absolutely. So funny. Yeah. So I really like him in this picture. Uh, I think, you know, so he's initially just another beatnik jerk who doesn't give Walter a chance. He's also Walter's boss. And he's, of course, a mean boss who tells Walter he has to do his job and so forth. Quit quit staring into the stars. Quit talking to the, the, the customers. Uh, but he ultimately becomes like the one person who knows the terrible truth about what's going on. And he has to wrestle with that. Um, and we'll, we'll get into how he wrestles with it and what sort of choices he makes based on that knowledge. It's fun as an audience that we can see his motivation very clearly, but no one else can. It's, it's, yeah. it's fun. <laughs> All right. We also have uh, Ed Nelson uh, popping up in this one. Uh, Ed Nelson lived 1928 through 2014. He was the star of 58's The Brain Eaters, which uh, we've talked about on Weird House before. He was a frequent Corman actor. Um, in this, he plays one of those two undercover cops, Art LaCroix. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure what flavor LaCroix he would be because he's, he, he'd be one of the, the the less drinkable flavors, I think, you know, because uh, he, he has a very rough exterior. He's At first you think he's like the sleazier of the beatniks, and then you realize, oh, he's an undercover cop. And he's dressed like an undercover cop, like a big goofy hat, a fur yeah. jacket. It's like he's, he's definitely like, hello, fellow kids, I'm here. Yes. <laughs> All right, so we have a lot of beatniks hanging out in there. And we do have kind of like a lead beatnik, your your head beatnik. This is the poet Maxwell, played by Julian Burton, who lived 1932 through 2006. Mostly a TV actor, perhaps best known for this film. Yeah, he's the lead pompous beatnik poet and ultimately the tastemaker at the Yellow Door. If he says something is good, it is good, and everyone falls in line. I thought this character was a constant delight. He does a lot of poetry performances, either officially or sort of unofficially off mic, because it's also just how he speaks to everyone. And it ultimately plays an essential role in both the plot and also just sort of the texture of the film. It's it's note perfect, pitch perfect for someone who is both very pompous and yet like not phony. Like like, like he, he does kind of back up what he says. He's just like a typical blowhard artist that really, really buys into their own um, their own scene and, and their own message mm-hmm. and their own intentions. And it's it's perfect. It's perfect. I've I've met dozens of men uh, just like Maxwell, for sure. And of course, there's a there's a, a hypocrisy to him as well, as we'll get oh, into. Yeah. Of course, because that is a part of art. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, moving on to the art direction on this film, it's worth pointing out because it's Daniel Haller, uh, born 1929. He's come up on the show before because he went on to direct 1970s The Dunwich Horror. And he also did production design on Mask of the Red Death. So he worked with Corman a lot uh, and went on to, uh, yeah, went on, went on to, uh, to direct a number of pictures as well. I don't want to give away probably what he spent most of his time and money on, but <laughs> yeah, you can tell well, what, what, what I bet most of his time went into. But we'll yeah. talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, because he, he couldn't take the same shortcuts that Walter did. <laughs> right. Obviously. Very true. Very true. All right. Music-wise, uh, the score is attributed to Fred Katz, who lived 1919 through 2013. And fittingly, there's a lot of lot of sax, oh, a yeah. lot of delirious beatnik sax uh, that you've heard. In, if you watch the films of this caliber, you've heard it before. Um, you know, you, the sax is drizzling. Uh, there's the, like implied or overt drug use. Um, it is supposed to be the soundtrack of getting high in the late 50s. And we have uh, matching stoner characters to oh, yeah. just really convey that, really let you know 
what's happening behind the scenes right here, but but the Hayes Code is stopping them from overtly telling you. <laughs> I was not. Yeah, you're referring to there's a there's a duo like the comedic yes. duo of stoners, and I I was constantly floored by the humor because I. It, it was not connecting with me and I wasn't sure how much of it is like the cultural distance, how much of it is like the fact that they had to be a little uh, careful in how they they treated this humor. Um, because, yeah, they're supposed to be high all the time and they're uh, they're sort of drifting in and out of the room, uh, blasted out of their skulls. Uh, but I found very little that they did was actually like overtly funny. I felt like I was missing the joke. <laughs> I mean, they were definitely the, uh, the Beavis and Butthead of the 50s yeah. or perhaps the Cheech and Chong of the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And yeah, all, all of their slang and goofiness never really did much for me. But but I did I did notice one point that I was like, oh, that's clearly a joke that they're making, uh, which was like um, <laughs> someone said something. And then one of the stoner beatniks says, oh, what did he say? So, and the other one goes, didn't you hear him? He's like, nah, I'm too far out. <laughs> ah, oh, yeah, that's good. That's good. <laughs> of, of course. Of that course. <laughs> now, uh, one final note on the saxophone music, though. Uh, the credited saxophonist here, and we see him on screen, is Grammy-nominated Paul Horn, who lived 1930 through 2014. Were you familiar with Paul Horn? Only by name. I can't okay. say I'm too familiar with specific saxophone jazz. Yeah, this I wasn't either, but this guy apparently uh, was, was a pretty big deal. He went on to become a pretty big deal. He got into the like early New Age music scene particularly with a 1969 album called Inside. Sometimes I think it's on like Spotify as Inside the Taj Mahal because it was apparently recorded inside the Taj Mahal. And uh, I was listening to part of it before we came in to record this, and it's uh, it, it's pretty good stuff. It's like it's got that thing, soothing, um, um, you, know, uh, you know, very very obviously inspired by traditional Indian music and, and utilizing traditional Indian instruments. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's quite good, and apparently it was a big hit in like the new age scene. And he went on to uh, doing albums for what is it, Wyndham Hill, uh, you know, the big mm. uh, new age music label of the day. I mean, it matches this movie perfectly. It, it's a, a lone saxophone wailing into the night is the sound of like open mic night at a uh, at a little coffee shop. So, yeah, no, it's it's perfect for this beatnik styled film. Well, let's let's get into the plot a little bit. Now, this is not one that we're going to necessarily do like a, a blow by blow or or beat by beat, if you will, the- uh, if you want to get cheeky. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, account of what happens. And then to a certain extent, we don't have to go beat by beat because uh, the, the formula, you can pretty much guess at everything once we lay out the initial steps. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's basically five chunks of escalation. It, mm-hmm. it escalates one after the other after the other, both in severity and I suppose in motivation. But I suppose we should tell the people what we're talking about before we start getting yeah. into those five steps. Yeah. So again, it's the late fifties. You've got the this beatnik um, uh, hang. You've got the this uh, this this coffee house. There's a lot of poetry going on. Visual arts, uh, obviously smoking, uh, and, and also obviously some drug use going on. Uh, they're very clear about that. The, the police are are interested in this in this place uh, for that very reason. And uh, you see the you know the typical interactions between you know like, we have the you know the tastemaker Maxwell and we have his hangers on we have the the stoner duo who are not artists and barely seem to know <laughs> really what's going on in their immediate vicinity but you know they're they're there they're there to hang out they're part of the scene and in the midst of all of this we have we have Walter. Uh, and Walter just works at the coffee shop. He's going around, like, busting the tables and so forth, uh, bringing coffee out to folks. But he's constantly distracted uh, because 
he is ultimately, even though he works here, he is an outsider to the actual scene. Uh, he is a loner. He desperately wants to belong somewhere. And this is the primary culture that he is apparently exposed to. So he wants to be a part of what he sees here. And he sees that the main thing he needs to do is he needs to become an artist. And, and yeah, I think most people become artists in real life because they have an affinity for it or perhaps some sort of innate talent. Walter, as we see, doesn't really have either of those things. It's like you said, it's just logically he wants to be a part of this social group. And the way to do that is to be a popular artist amongst this social group. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, they're not they're not looking to let anybody in. Certainly, they're not looking to let him in. They're very that everyone, with the exception of Clara, uh, are, are pretty um, um, uh, pretty clear on this, right? Uh, that that he does not belong. He's only here to to pick up the coffee mugs and so forth. Um, so that's part of it. But he doesn't seem to be drawn to the creative side of art so much. Mm. Uh, he's drawn to the prospect of social belonging and ultimately fame. Uh, but he doesn't put the time in. And perhaps part of that is he doesn't know how to put the time in. You know, he's he's I guess exposed to this like very poetic. Um, uh, vision of what creativity is that Maxwell is uh, is spouting the idea that like you know creativity is just something that like the artist breathes in and out and it's not implied that it's something that imply that takes work and dedication that you may fail at a lot before you get somewhere and so he also doesn't know how to fail he doesn't know how to set goals he doesn't have any of these tools and he's also uh, probably uh, you know supposed to be picking up yeah, a lot of additional myths about creativity. Yeah, we'll see this a little bit later when we watch him attempting to make art on his own early on, where he's trying to sculpt a, a bust of Carla, the the, mm -hmm. the, uh, the woman who's nice to him. And while he's doing it, you can just see his anger and like he's trying to like punch at it and jab at it. He's like, yeah. be a nose, be a <laughs> nose. And he he doesn't know. He doesn't he doesn't know how to actually do these things. He isn't going through the steps. He just wants instantaneously, like you said, to like breathe out the art and it exists. Yeah, he's hitting that. I, I've heard it called the creative cliff. Mm. And um, and I, and it, it's interesting because I think, you know, everyone out there, uh, you know, myself included, I'm sure you've had this experience. We've all had those be and nose moments with the things <laughs> we're working on where you just you, you can't do make the thing happen. And and it's frustrating. And ultimately, you know, you have to. You have to stop. You have to come back. Uh, but but again, he hasn't been trained in any of that. He hasn't been told any of that. He hasn't been picking up on a culture that um, that, that 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 says that that is a part of the the of being a creative person and engaging in creative endeavors. So he just gets super frustrated uh, and and doesn't know how to move forward. Poor guy. Yeah. But I, we have to stress that he is at, at least initially a very likable guy. He's uh, you know. He's he's supposed to be a bit dimwitted. He's supposed to uh, still you know be a nice guy. He wants to make friends. Nobody else is letting him in or giving him a chance, except maybe uh, Carla. And uh, yeah, at the same time, the the all he's exposed to is this culture of there is only art. You know, Maxwell's constantly talking about this in his poetry. Like nothing else has value except art. Everything else serves uh, um, art. And these are the ideas that take on literal weight and end up festering in his increasingly troubled mind. If he had just grown up in a different neighborhood, maybe this entire movie would be uh, aimed at him wanting to become a baseball player or wanting to become a chef. It was just, you know, this mm -hmm. happened to be the scene that he was in. And so this is what he needed to do. 
Oh, and the, the chef is a great idea because there's your instant template for a cannibal movie. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Most a different Walter Paisley wants to be um, a, a fine chef, uh, doesn't have the skills and ends up committing murder and cannibalism. I can. And I bet I have seen that film. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, let's let's get to the point, because he uh, he's trying to create. Uh, he wants to create. Uh, and he's failing. He can't make a nose. A nose does not manifest out of the clay. Um, meanwhile, the landlady, the nice but also nosy landlady who kept checking in on him, has a cat, a beloved cat, that has somehow climbed into the wall. And he's got several things going on. Frustrated with the art. He's trying to cook uh, some sort of dinner. And then it's clear the cat is stuck in the wall. So he does what you know, a rational person does. He decides to stab the wall to free the cat and, of course, murders the cat in the process. Yeah, it's it's important to keep this in mind. The first death was not human, and the Mm -hmm. first death was an accident. I I think it's also very important that um, something you'll read a lot in, um, oh, how to write a screenplay movies or books and things like that, where it'll be like um, the save the cat moment is something that Mm -hmm. gets brought up often. You can look at the movie uh, Alien, for example, um, et cetera, et cetera. And um, yeah, saving the cat is a big thing for a protagonist to do to show that they are likable and that they are um, caring and empathetic towards other creatures, et cetera, et cetera. This is the opposite. (laughs) <laughs> we start our film with uh, with killing a cat uh, yeah. accidentally. Yeah, he's trying to save it. He's trying to do right. But right. it's a hideous fumble. Uh, the cat doesn't suffer much. It's not too grotesque or anything. But he's left with this dead cat and something clicks in his head, right? Uh, he realizes this is the opportunity. You know, he's got Maxwell's uh, uh, poetic uh, drivels uh, running around his head. And he realizes, okay, there is something I can do here. And then... Uh, you can probably guess what it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, if, if you haven't caught on, basically, he uh, he traces the cat <laughs> by uh, by covering the, the, the dead cat with clay, turning it into a sculpture, which uh, suddenly makes him hyper-realistic in his sculptures. That's something, I mean, how, how do you get that kind of anatomy? You know, it's, it's difficult yeah. to really replicate the exact form and uh, ratios of body parts of a living creature. But he's got it overnight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he brings this uh, this hideous sculpture in, which is just, you know, it's supposed to be a dead cat covered in clay. Uh, and then there is a knife sticking out of it. <laughs> I love it's that so, he didn't remove the knife. <laughs> yeah. He just left the knife in there. Um, and, you know, at first, uh, you know, he brings this in and, uh, you know, Carla takes a, a look at it and uh, and also DeSantis takes a look at it. And, uh, you know, it's 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 grim. And DeSantis is pretty quick to want to just dismiss it. But but Carla's nice. And she's like, I think you might have something here. And eventually DeSantis is like, OK, we'll put it in the corner. We'll see if anybody buys it. It can mm-hmm. go in the corner of, of the coffee house uh, and we'll just see what happens. And he doesn't seem to expect much. But of course, you know, what's going to happen. Uh, it catches on. People are noticing this cool, hyper-realistic sculpture of a dead cat. It's very telling and very accurate of the art scene. (laughs) BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell TechFest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Well, Seth, do you want to walk us through the um, the escalation of these uh, of these crimes? Each one a different uh, artistic creation uh, by our protagonist uh, Walter Paisley. Yeah, almost an anti-hero. He's mm-hmm. um, the subject for sure. Yeah. So uh, we'll tell you now. Basically, there is a rapid escalation, and his motivation changes from death to death to death to death to death. To moving on. So yeah, first one is a cat. And it's an accident. So perhaps out of just desperation, he makes this statue and it's beloved. Oh, no. Positive reinforcement. (laughs) That's the worst thing anyone could have done to Walter Paisley after (laughs) accidentally killing something. So he's very excited. He's he's um, he's on cloud nine. All the other beatniks are really proud of him for making this beautiful piece of art that Maxwell has said is good. You know, so now everyone else has to say it's good, too. I should add, they like it so much that there's this one lady who comes up to him at the coffee house and she just can't put it into words how beautiful right. the work is. So she gives him a whole lot of heroin. <laughs> yes, she gives him a vial of heroin mm-hmm. and he doesn't even know what it is. Uh, yeah. She just wanted to be a part of this yeah. <laughs> of this of this creation. And she thought that the way she could do it first, she tries to go home with him, but he is very um, confused and doesn't really understand what's happening. Mm-hmm. And then she goes, well, I, I have to contribute. I have to be a part of this. So then she gives him heroin. <laughs> now, as we've mentioned, there are two undercover cops who are, are, are on constant rotation at this one coffee house. One of them sees this handoff and follows Walter home. He 
interrupts Walter in his house and goes, hello, Walter. And he's like, oh, I know you. You come down to the store. How are you? Come on in. Come on in. You know, let's be friends. Hooray. Someone came to see me at my house. And he's like, I'm an undercover cop. I, I saw that. You, you were handed heroin. I'm going to have to take you in. He's like, heroin? He's like, yeah, yeah, that, that little jar that was giving you. He's like, you know, horse? And he's like, oh, it wasn't that nice of her to give me that nice horse. <laughs> yeah, that nice, expensive horse. <laughs> yes. And um, so he doesn't get it. He definitely doesn't get it. Now, the undercover cop is frustrated, so he tries to convince him and try to get what he wants from him. So he pulls out his gun. He's like, look, Walter, don't make me use this. I'm going to have to. He's like, oh, no, you're going to shoot me. He's like, no, I'm not going to shoot you. I'm just saying I'm a cop. I'm arresting you. Let's go. And he's like, no, I don't want you to shoot me. And so he was cooking at the time and he was holding like almost like a crepe pan, let's Mm -hmm. say. And so if you haven't seen a crepe pan, it's like a frying pan, except the edges are very, very low, very, 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 a very shallow frying pan. And so Walter seemingly, at least in his own mind, for sure, in self-defense swings this pan at the cop and we don't see it on screen but later we will see just cleaves his head right down the middle with this with this very slim pan so first death was an animal and it was an accident second death undercover cop quote-unquote self-defense let's let's see where this keeps going so uh, uh obviously there's the pattern here so he covers this undercover cop in clay and um i suppose we'll kind of let this part happen so the first person to realize what walter is doing is leonard the guy that owns the uh the the art house the the coffee shop the yellow door and he sees it because i believe the cat statue tips over and just a little piece of fur is poking out and he's like oh you hack fraud you weirdo what 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 are you doing trying to cover a dead cat in clay and put it in my coffee house this is ridiculous so he's about to like go tell it to walter and get mad Mm -hmm. at him when someone comes in, uh, let's call it a square patron comes in and it's like, yeah. I need that cat sculpture. I'll pay you 10 times what you what you ask for. It's give you, I must have it. I must have it. And at first he's like, no, I'm not going to sell you a dead cat covered in clay. He's like, I'll double it. And he's like, oh, no, 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 I can't do that. I'll triple it. <laughs> and you see it. You see it in Leonard's eye that he's like, oh, this is money. This mm-hmm. is absolutely money. Fine. I, I, I won't give it to you today, but yes we'll do it because i'm sure he goes through his mind he's like all right I, I, it's just a dead cat it's fine it's fine yeah. but then walter brings in his next piece which he has named murdered man <laughs> <laughs> yep. and it's the undercover cop covered in clay and leonard is the only one who puts two and two together and understands what's what's happening, what has escalated. Everyone else thinks it's a wonderful sculpture. How did you capture that look of agony on his face? Oh, your realism. Oh, this is so wonderful. I remember there's one point where someone's like, oh, how did you do this so quickly? He's like, oh, you know, I just put some clay on and fixed it up. No, no big <laughs> deal. He's like, it must have taken you forever. It's like, no, it doesn't take me too long. Like, yeah. okay, right. Because <laughs> you're, you're just putting a facade on this. You're not actually sculpting anything so um everyone loves it except leonard leonard feels ill leonard does not want to be a part of this and he doesn't know what to do because on the one hand money and on the other (laughs) hand is he like an accessory at this point and so so he's trying to to de-escalate this whole situation he's like you know what walter why don't you maybe try some free form? You know, yeah. forget this human figure thing. No, no, nobody, nobody can do that anymore. It's just, just free form, abstract 
things. Don't, no, no more humans. No more death and destruction, okay? And everyone else is like, what? He's so good at this. Clearly. <laughs> Let him lean into this. Yeah, like Maxwell comes to his uh, defense. It's like, don't tell him how to do his art. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's wonderful. And uh, so there we are. Now, 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 because of this new statue and, and the first uh, cat statue, the whole place is a buzz. And Leonard has even, in an attempt to, to just kind of, I guess, uh, A, to keep Walter away from him a little bit, he has, I, I guess fired is the right, wrong way to put it, but he has given him an advance uh, mm-hmm. for his sculptures and said, just just go, <laughs> just yeah. leave. Don't, don't, don't make any more statues for now, okay? Just, just yeah. relax. Yeah, go on a little sabbatical here. And he's clear, he's not, he's like, yeah, don't, don't make any more art just yet because <laughs> yeah. again money but also yeah he knows that what that what another piece would mean and he's probably you know uh, juggling around this idea it's like am i an accessory to murder at this point um and then also you can imagine he's telling himself but hey nobody else has to know that i know i can just right. be as surprised as everyone else when this eventually blows up but i can make a little bit of money in the meantime Absolutely. I mean, you know, the lo- the yellow door is not a huge money making endeavor. Like the right. um, the be- the Beavis and Butthead characters, I think they often say they have no money and they're just hanging around. Yeah, <laughs> I I think there's a there's there's a lot of just people lurking there that aren't actually giving Leonard any money. Um, so moving on, the next time we see uh Walter Paisley, suddenly he's got a little money in his pocket. He has two successful sculptures. He comes into the yellow door not as an employee. But as a guest, he's mm. he's bought a fancy new beatnik outfit. Yeah. Uh, he's walking around with like a little walking stick that he refers to as his Zen stick, which is just remarkable. <laughs> um, and everyone's just fawning over him. Uh, Maxwell invites him down to be his, his special guest, et cetera, et cetera. And this is all wonderful. Walter's having the best time of his life. This is anything and everything he ever wanted. He's getting it. But then... Uh, a artist's model who is often a part of the scene named Alice, who's been out of town for the past week or two, she says, she comes into the hangout and then like everyone's fawning over Walter and she's confused because she's like, what? No, 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 no. I'm awesome. You guys are awesome. He's not awesome. He's just the bus boy. Mm-hmm. And they're like, no, no, he's, he's an artist now. And he's like, no, y'all, y'all are putting me on. Like, this is just a joke for my benefit. Like, he's just the bus boy. Get him out of here. Walter doesn't like this. He was just on the top of the mountain. He's not going to come down. Mm-hmm. So, um, like I said, she's an artist model. He's mad at her, but she she goes on home and he follows her. And he's like, I'd love to hire you to be an artist model so I can make another sculpture. And she's like, well, that is my job. Fine. Let's do it. And he's like, yeah, let's do it now. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So she goes to his place. And now, now Walter is definitely crossing a line because you can see where this is going. He kills her, strangles her with a scarf. And this one's just personal spite. Like, there's no self-defense. There's no accident. He is doing this because Alice was mean to him. And now he is... He needs a body for the art. You know, it's it's very funny. I was thinking about this. This movie came out uh, from the same writer-director right before Little Shop of Horrors. Mm-hmm. Many similarities. <laughs> this situation here specifically is where it's like, oh, I got to kill someone. Well, <laughs> you're mean. Yeah. I guess I guess you'll do. It, it's that same situation of a... Of, of a of a ne'er-do-well kind of nebbish guy just being like, I need bodies. <laughs> Here yeah. we go. And so now, now he's going in cold blood. And yeah, it's a character that she's not hateable. No. She's, yeah. But she's not supposed to be 100% likable. So 
you know, we're accelerating through that gray zone into like, yeah, it's clearly he's a murderer at this point, but he hasn't attempted to murder anyone that we really like yet. And, you know, especially in a genre picture, like, I guess we, we, we're more forgiving of that sort of thing. Uh, like the threshold uh, of the uncrossable transgression is, uh, is, is maybe a little, little farther out. In a movie like this. But we still have room to escalate. So um, we we continue. And once again, Leonard is like, stop. You have to stop. Please stop. This is terrible. Stop, stop, stop. But he just keeps on doing his thing. And and he's... He's he's really like kind of like hitting the thesis on the head at this point because they threw like a big celebration for him where he got very drunk mm-hmm. and he's just kind of like lamenting and feeling kind of sad and he starts like walking home alone by himself and he literally says the phrase I got to do something before they forget. Yeah. And it's just this this moment where it's like yeah that's like kind of all he has and all he wants is this moment of being in the spotlight and being admired. I don't want to put too many parallels here, but there's definitely some modern social media parallels there of things mm-hmm. of just like, I just got to do something for the gram. I just got to put something up on TikTok. It doesn't really matter what it is. I just need to stay in the spotlight for another minute. And kind of like we were saying before, where it's like, he's not trying to get notoriety by being good at something. He's not trying to get notoriety because like he particularly loves making art. He just wants to be famous. Yeah. And so again, there, there's some social media parallels there of like just wanting fame for fame's sake to fit in, be a part of a social scene. And just like he said, I got to do something before they forget. I just need to go. I just need to do. And so so here's here's where he crosses yet another line a further escalation. He's walking home drunk from the yellow door and he sees like a construction worker, perhaps like making a furniture in like a little like outdoor kind of like alleyway workshop mm-hmm. kind of thing. And he just kills the man. He cuts off his head with a like um, circular saw. Again, this is all Hayes code, so we don't see anything. There's like no violence in any of this. And um, he makes a bust. It's just the man's <laughs> head that he covers in clay and like sticks on a stick. And if that's art, hey, that happens all the time. But no, Leonard, <laughs> once again, knows exactly what that is. And he's flipping out. He doesn't know what to do. You see him just acting like a like a very conflicted, you know, weirdo. And but he's like, all right, we're going to set up an art show because I got to cash in on this. Now. <laughs> That's his logical conclusion. Not this is the point where I call the police or right. even like set up, a like convince everyone. Like now I realize what's up. He's like, mm, let's go ahead and do that art show while we can. <laughs> exactly. This has a shelf life and I need to get my money quick yeah. because um, he mentions this. And this is actually very accurate. He gets a 50 percent cut of the um, sales of the pieces. And in fact, we do see him take advantage of Walter early on. The dead cat was originally being sold, I believe, for 100. And so Walter would have gotten 50 and he would have gotten 50. But the um, when he was like, no, I'm not going to sell, I'm not going to sell, I believe it went all the way up to 500. But yeah. when he paid Walter, he still only paid him $50. Yeah, only 50. <laughs> so, so Leonard is, is a villain here and he is taking advantage of Walter. But he really needs this money. <laughs> so he's going to do an art show and it's 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 going to bring in everybody. And so they do it. They bring in this big art show. Got a dead cat. Got a dead cop. Got a dead art model. Got a dead construction worker's head on a stick, all covered in clay. And everyone's loving it. There, there's an art critic there saying, oh, I'm going to write this up and all these pieces are going to be worth 10 times what they are now. And everyone's mm-hmm. loving it. This is a great time. And at this point, 
he uh, Walter Paisley is so, you know, um, living his dreams that he does something that he's wanted to do, which is to an, a, a attempt a romantic relationship with Carla. She's the only one that's ever been nice to him. He's got to go and, and show her his his feelings. He's uh, at, at the peak of his career that perhaps uh, that he'll that he ever will be. He needs to do this now. So he confesses his feelings and she's like, nah, we're, we're, we can be friends, but I just don't mm -hmm. see you that way. Typical trying to let him down easy situation. And you see something kind of change in him. And he goes, yeah, how about I do a sculpture of you, Carla? Oh, yeah. And now he's really crossed that line. Like now he's in the in the, the unredeemable um, uh, area here because he's decided, well, if you're not going to be my partner, you are going to be my art. Absolutely. So it went from accident to self-defense to personal spite with a stranger, random killing of a stranger. Now it's personal killing of someone that he knows well and has affection for. Mm -hmm. There's only one place you can go after this, and I bet you can guess what it is. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. So uh, ultimately, uh, I believe at the event, someone I think bumps into. Oh no, no! I believe they they see a fingernail poking out of of the Alice sculpture, yes, and uh, yes. they're trying to figure out what it is. Then someone knocks over one of them, and it cracks open. And like, so they the, the, 
the cat is out of the bag. Everyone knows. And they are trying to go get Walter. Walter's like, I got to get out of here. So he runs home. Um, I, I, I guess I want to put this delicately because it's not a, a, a nice thing that happens. He puts a little bit of clay on his face, covers himself just a little bit in, in, in clay, and he hangs himself. And that is the end of the film. And uh, I believe Maxwell says, like, oh, it's his final piece, you know? Yeah. yeah. And that's it. That's the whole movie. And it's, uh, it's, it's very straightforward, very simple escalation, but just delicately done. And all the pieces kind of fit together in a real nice, a, a, a nice little, um, you, you, can, you can feel the growth. It's, it's almost like Breaking Bad in a way. You're okay with this character at first, and you just see them getting worse and worse and worse. And by the end, you're like, no, I'm not with them. <laughs> They're making, they've made too many bad decisions against people I like. I'm not in at all. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, like a lot of these the, the pictures of this time period. Like, this is a very short runtime, sixty five mm-hmm. minutes. Mm-hmm. So uh, everything is very economically presented, like beat to beat. You can follow it very easily. There's not a lot of wasted motion here. Absolutely, uh, um, Robert. I must tell you about something that I attempted back when I believe I was in college at the time. Uh, I wanted to make a full length animated remake of this film by oh, myself. Wow. At the time, I was really into rotoscope animation. There's a studio called Flat Black Films who did things like uh, Waking Life and Scanner Darkly, mm. stuff like that. Loved that animation style. And I decided I was going to make a rotoscoped film of this film, A Bucket of Blood. So um, I started it, and I immediately realized how long it would take me <laughs> by myself to rotoscope an entire feature-length film. But I, I did plan it all out. And I, 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 the idea and all of the work I put into it is still sitting there in my like first 10 minutes of this film finished. I'd called it Another Bucket of Blood. <laughs> and my favorite part about this was that because it is black and white, I had the opportunity to do whatever I wanted with the color palette. And so I um, made each character within a completely different hue of a color palette that had mm. a deeper meaning tied into like the representation of the color and what that color can mean in like the greater world. So, for example, uh, Maxwell, because he was like the head of the whole yellow door scene, I made him purple because he was regal. And the purple yeah, is often okay. a royal color associated with that. Uh, Leonard, because he runs the yellow door, his whole hue color palette was yellow. And also because he's quite a cowardly character. Yeah. He won't actually take any action, won't do anything. Uh, Walter was was completely in shades of green because not only was he green in terms of inexperience, he also had a bit of the green-eyed monster. He mm-hmm. was he was he was very envious of others and wanted to have what others had, etc., etc., etc. Like these all all these things happened for like all the central characters. They all had a, a a color coding that kind of like showed their um their future intentions and also perhaps said something about their personality. And I'm very sorry to say that I finished about oh five minutes of this, five to ten minutes, and I was like, I will never do anything else if i dedicate my time to this this will absorb my entire life for the next five years if this is what i focus on so so yes i'm sad to say i never i, I never finished it but i i used some clips in like animation reels that i used to like get real animation jobs oh well that's good it's a it's a, it's a great idea for a project um i guess you didn't have a be a nose moment but you had this moment that walter never has where where you realized how much work it would take and what it would take out of you and what the returns would be uh, based on this investment. 
Absolutely. And and in some ways, rotoscoping, uh, if folks don't know, is an animation style used with uh, tracing over source uh, film um, oh. uh, panels. So that being the case, I was well aware that my animation style was pulling off what Walter Paisley was doing in the film as well. That I was, instead of applying uh, clay to the figures, I was putting a layer of pixels over everyone. Uh, it was it was a fun project, but that that's that's for when you're you know in your twenties and you have nothing but free time, and you you think that you know every art project is is achievable because you have infinite time in this world, mm-hmm. and then you have to get jobs. <laughs> you know, looking back on on Walter's creations, like the first one is kind of an interesting stopping point because there are artists who use and have used. Uh, animals and dead animals and cadavers to varying degrees either yeah. actually as part of the work as we as, as we see with walter or of course as inspiration anatomical studies i'm of course very much opposed to any kind of animal cruelty based artwork mm-hmm. uh, but just the idea of like a dead animal being used in the art is not uh, you know completely out of out of bounds uh, a very famous one is uh, damien hurst damien hurst mm. he has done that with um sharks he has done yep. that with, um, gosh, I think there are other animals as well. His shark piece is the yeah. most famous. But, uh, but you're, you're absolutely right. And these are highly applauded, highly um, famous and well-respected artists. Uh, Damien Hirst is one of the most popular modern artists in the world. And he, he has done this. He displayed a dead shark in a tank and was like, that's my art. Yeah. And of course, there are artists who have also used either you know anatomical fluids or parts mm. or even cadavers uh, yeah. to different degrees human cadavers but of course one of the key rules is you were not allowed to make that cadaver yourself <laughs> and you need any in any kind of fluids or parts you use it needs to be above board it needs to be consensual and above board Yes, yes. Um, I, I remember Body Works is like a museum piece mm. where they did that as well. And another thing too that the the the, the um, artists who use these human or or animal bodies, uh, death as as like the the palette, they're not lying to you. <laughs> they're not yeah. pretending that it's not a dead body. They're, they're, they are saying this is this. That's part of the message. They're not they're not hiding a dead body inside of a clay um, exterior. Now another interesting theme that I like, and we we get we get we get to see a little bit of this reflections of it, um, perhaps in the uh, like you know the third act I guess, um, you know where Walter is concerned about what's next and you know how am I gonna again we talked about this how you know I've got to put up something else I've got to stay in the conversation, and at the same time like fear that they're gonna find him out he's gonna realize that he's a fraud so we have that interesting texture that he is. I guess, quite literally a fraud. And there is this dark secret and people don't know the dark secret of how he's creating the art. And it's not based in his sculpting talent that has come out of nowhere. Um, and so, you know, it gets into that whole like fear that I think even being a very successful artists have that like, they're going to see through me. They're, you know, they're going to, they're going to, to, to realize the insecurities that I have about my creations. Mm-hmm. Imposter syndrome for sure. Yeah. yeah. And then also, you know, getting back to what you said, this idea of like, how do I follow it up? Like, what is the next thing that I have to do? And with Walter, like his pieces of art are literal crimes, <laughs> they're, <laughs> yeah. they're literal, tra- you know, traumatic experiences that, you know, are still taking a lot out of him. And yeah, we can sort of like roughly compare that to any creative process where it's like you put all this work into something, you know, you lose something in making it. Maybe you don't even love the thing when you're done with it anymore, but it's done. And then 
there is either the overt demand or just the, the, the pressure you feel to like, you've got to do something else now. You've got to go, perhaps go through all of that again. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, um, it's very understandable, very believable. And if folks are <laughs> curious, this version of a story has been told multiple times in other lampoonings of the art world. There's mm -hmm. a really great one called Art School Confidential, where um, a series of murders are are taking place around like an, uh, uh, an art school campus. And then like the paintings of the dead bodies are the remnants from the, uh, the, the from the killer. And then there's an episode of CSI, I remember, where people were um, killing people. And then the artist would then uh, kind of like that, like, um, bodies exhibit. They would, like, plasticize them where they were just, like, standing on the street frozen. And that mm. was, like, their art. Like, 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 this idea, because, like, when you think about, like, what are the extremes of where art can go? This is a logical slippery slope conclusion is, like, murder. Murder can yeah. be the thing. Because they're also versions of this um there, there was uh, an artist for example that his art piece was to be shot he stood in a gallery and got shot by a gun and that was his art piece that day so so you know th there are versions of this in the real world and so it's it's fascinating yeah 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 and then of course you also have the various wax museum pictures mm -hmm. where uh a toy was some version of this as well it's like the, the hideous secret behind these these wax uh, doubles is that, of course, they're dead bodies that the, the wax master is covered up in wax. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting concept that can be approached multiple ways. Now, I'd say with the, the ending of the film, it like, like you said, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty dark ending, but it also happens really fast. Mm. It has that kind of quick wrap-up feel that you find in a lot of, especially like crime pictures of the time period, but even like very, you know, superhero-y horror sci-fi things. It's like, enemy's dead, roll credits. Uh, so it's all very sudden and it's very much in keeping with the, the time period. But I found myself wondering, again, he's just hanging up there. He's got some clay just smeared on him. Uh, what if they'd gone in a different direction? And what if Walter's final creation, his own death, was beautiful? What if it had been transcendent? What if it had been sublime? Um, it wouldn't have been really in keeping with the feel of the film. But um, I can't help but imagine like what that would have I guess it would have skewed the the message of the film in perhaps an undesirable direction, but um, it it might have also been just a little less dark in that regard. I'm not sure. Absolutely, and and you know there is also, um, gosh, I suppose a fetishization is perhaps too extreme of a term, but you know when artists die young, mm -hmm. that is always a thing that occurs where people will then um, give a deeper embrace to their work. Uh, quite often. Uh, for good reason, because it's wonderful art. But uh, it is just, you know, it's a trope. It's a trope that um, if an artist dies young, their work is embraced even more so. What would have happened the year after this? Would there have been artists that were really inspired by his work? Um, could there have been a bucket of blood, too, where it was another artist in, like, art school who was studying Walter Paisley and then becomes a copycat murderer? I think that's mm -hmm. the easiest idea in the world. It would have been wonderful. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great point. Yeah, the, the the cult of the 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 young artist that has that we've tragically lost, but mm -hmm. also just like the i like the cult of the young artist. I was listening right. to an NPR uh, piece um, before this uh, recording, and uh, the expert. And I, I'm sorry, I don't I don't have the information in front of me. I can't remember what the expert's in, uh, name was, but he was talking a bit about like this this myth, like the basic myth that like real creativity it comes young uh, and it comes strong. 
you know, right. and uh, it's it's the sort of creative myth that ends up having a negative impact um, uh, on a lot of us. And you can imagine that sort of myth impacting the fictional Walter Paisley as well. Like, you know, I, I, I'm not a natural talent. What then I'm, I must be lost. There's nothing I can do. And that's it's not the case. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, it, it's for such a silly throwaway movie. There's a lot of thought that went into it and a lot of thought you can have afterwards about its implications and its uh, its greater effect. And, and yeah, in many ways, like I said, the, the mirroring of our modern world and how perhaps it's not that different from how it was in the 50s, comparing social media to the beatnik world of the <laughs> 1950s. A lot of similar aspects, which is fascinating. I think my final thought on this film would be um, I was really expecting someone to say daddy-o at some point, and no one ever did. And it makes me wonder, uh, I've never researched when daddy-o uh, enters public usage or becomes associated with beatniks. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm going on faulty information here. That's, that's a great point. Um, I, I actually own a couple of beatnik comics from around this era there's there's mm. a comic artist i love named uh, john stanley and he tried to make a whole series just about goofy beatniks in the 1950s and um it was only popular enough to make two uh, two issues and then it was canceled and the thing i remember uh in their slang is they use the word reet all the time mm. r-e-e-t to mean like correct right huh. you know and i and i remember you know in in the 2020s being like huh <laughs> all right like you know better than i do but yeah i thought you'd be saying things like daddy-o but no 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 they, they they had their own slang it was it's 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 fascinating seeing those little like um time capsules all right seth well this has been a lot of fun thanks for coming on the show to discuss um a bucket of blood from 1959 uh yeah a lot to a lot to chew on with this one uh tell folks out there where they can find rusty needles record club and how they can get in touch with you absolutely uh, so Rusty Needles Record Club is a weekly podcast, new episode every Friday, and it's um it's a podcast in the style of how podcasts used to be. Remember the old days, folks? Like around <laughs> like, let's say two thousand and four, <laughs> when people made podcasts just for fun and didn't put ads in them and just kind of like. Yeah, it, it, they they were personal and simple and very niche. That's that's what Rusty Needles Record Club is. It's 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 a 2004 style podcast. And uh, if you like music and you want to expand your musical horizons, or perhaps you just don't have anyone around you that you can have those kind of conversations with, you can at least have like a parasocial relationship with me and my co-host Scott as we talk about music. Our goal of the podcast is to listen to every single album ever made, and so far <laughs> we're doing great. It's we're. we're we are progressively moving towards that direction. So um, if you want to join us, just uh, look up Rusty Needles Record Club anywhere you listen to podcasts. We're available everywhere. And yeah, you'll find it. It's easy. That's, that's it. I, I, I join us if you feel like it. <laughs> All right. As for Weird House Cinema, of course, uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. If you want a nice list of all the films we've covered so far in the show, uh, including, I guess, three episodes with you now, Seth, because mm. during Joe's parental leave, we, uh, we covered two films, I think. Right. Uh, if you want to find all of those, well, uh, you can find a nice list at, at letterboxd.com. That's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com. Our username is Weird House. 
there's a nice list there. Dive in there. Find something you've never seen before or find something you want to you know, revisit. Uh, it, it's a great tool to use. And uh, yeah, in general, I'll just uh, ask everyone out there, hey, uh, if you've never rated and reviewed the podcast on one of the many platforms where you can get it, why don't you do that? That, that could help us out. Uh, another thing, if you listen to this on Apple, an Apple device, just maybe pop in and make sure that uh, you know, you're know you still, still subscribed, you're still getting downloads. That also helps us out in the long run. Thanks, as always, to our excellent producer, JJ, uh, for helping put together the show here. And if you want to get in touch with me uh, and or Joe, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome.